This is the Right Way Podcast. Right Way Podcast. The 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 Right Way Podcast. Hi everyone. Um, my name's Alicia Thompson, and I've written a book called Something Else. I'll be talking to Samuel Elliott on the Right Way Podcast about it, and uh, I invite you to join us. It's going to be a very in-depth, nerdy chat. Yeah, thank you so much for the introduction there, Alicia Thompson, and hello to everyone out there in digital land listening to this particular episode of the Right Way Podcast program with me, your host, Samuel Elliott, a voice I would like to think has uh, become quite uh, distinct and familiar to you. But yes, it's me, Samuel uh, Elliott of the Right Way Podcast program, the person whom you just heard introducing this episode of the Right Way Podcast program is none other than tonight's guest, Alicia Thompson. Alicia Thompson uh, grew up in Wollombi, a village two hours north drive of Sydney uh, and there from there she's gone on to lead a very storied life kind of jet setting around the world accumulating lots of life experience before she's returned uh, had a bit of a career in sort of bookkeeping and then from there has gone on to pursue her uh, lifelong passion for writing uh, obtaining a master's of creative writing degree from the University of Technology Sydney uh, where I myself attended as well albeit attaining a uh, bachelor's what's that called undergrad degree of creative writing uh, a few few years few years ago so we've been to the same we've matriculated at the same university so how is that but uh yeah alicia and i discussed her uh debut novel debut published novel with nine star press something else uh which came out late last year something else uh is centered around a town in western new south wales uh and follows david uh david who is a resident of uh lifelong resident of the town uh as well as well after he meets a chance encounter with Martin, the new sort of doctor at the town, and they strike up a sort of immediate become fast friends. Uh, and then as their friendship sort of uh, increases and they continue spending more time with one another, uh, David sort of discovers evidence of Martin being gay. And then from there uh, feels all these kind of, uh, uh, some inexplicable, some senseless, others, uh, I guess, justified and others still more confusing. Just a whirlwind of emotions, I guess, and finding that information and how he's perceived uh this person this friend and then from there that escalates into uh sort of whirlwind romance uh which uh david doesn't identify as gay uh closet or open uh or bisexual and then from there uh trying to kind of convey that to the loved ones or those around more feeling the need to and kind of going in from there so i guess that's kind of a summary i don't want to go into too much detail because i'm much rather obviously we discussed that with alicia herself so everyone please give a big digital round of applause to alicia thompson discussing with me her debut published novel something else alicia thank you so much for joining me on the right way podcast tonight how are you going i'm well thank you samuel that's good that's so good to hear but um Let's always start off with the one that uh, I always like to start off with. I dare say you've heard a few of the episodes now. Where did the idea for something else come from? It's a bit complex. Mm. Um, Good, I like complex. There's, <laughs> look, um, I've been writing a lot in my life and I think um, ideas tend to come to the magnet like filing mm. pieces, you know, uh, and sometimes you don't know where they're coming from and they form shapes and they come together in different ways, you know, and uh, the core of the story is quite a little bit of my personal life, mm. but totally fictionalized. Anybody who knows my life wouldn't say, Oh yes, I saw that happen. And I knew that happened. It, it's not like that, but they're situations where, 
I can honestly put myself in the feet of the protagonist and, or, or one of the characters and say, yeah, I, my gut feels this. I, I went through this experience. So it felt really real for me when I described it. <clears throat> so, you know, um, and people say to me, why did you choose an LGBT uh, vehicle to tell mm. the story? And I didn't deliberately do that. And I think for marketing purposes, I certainly wouldn't have done it deliberately, putting rural and LGBT together. But um, I've got a lot of gay friends. We have a lot of good conversations. And I don't know, it just felt natural for me to to have that uh, added conflict, I suppose, uh, with the character's conflicts that he had already. So um, I think it all just built from there and, and I just enjoyed the challenges this character had to go through and trying to get him, well, I brought him to the depths and I took him out of them, you know. It, it just made for a more interesting drama, I think. Mm. It's interesting that you mentioned about how like you might get different shades or tones of different ideas come to you at different times. It's very much off, I identify with that in terms of uh, how it all kind of comes together. Yeah, it's not like there's one sort of, it can be a bit of a spark, I guess, with an idea or an image, but I feel like it's a kind of rolling sort of aggregation of stuff that kind of builds up into this one sort of story that you then pursue. Tell me a little bit about, there's a Bruce, the town. Tell, you describe it at one point saying it's not nice to look at. I'll kind of wanna, I'm always interested in a backdrop. Alicia, as to, to how that sort of colours the characters, because it's always, uh, you know, the places in which we orbit, we impact them as much as they impact us. So talk a little bit about that before we get stuck into the nitty-gritty of the characters. Yeah, look, um, that's a really insightful question, Samuel. Um, I had various real scenes in mind, hmm. but I... And look, there's a lot of rural towns that have lovely hills and flowing valleys and, and all sorts of interesting things. But I really wanted to portray the utility of this land uh, that they're on. It's been chosen because it's good land for farming cattle. It's not been chosen because it's pretty. It's not been chosen, you know, for, for any other reason. Um, and that's what it does. And it, it's not particularly pretty to look at and I think that personality or that or that flavour of the town sort of goes into when I talk about the fact that all the single girls leave town you know mm. they, they want to get jobs they want to go somewhere that's a bit more vibrant something that's got a little bit more to offer and um, look I've been talking about the fact that all rural towns are not the same mm. and there's a lot of towns in Australia these days that have got a lot of organic farming and wineries and you know degustation stuff and um, lots of stuff happening and I think people that are doing all that resent me sort of saying as if I'm dragging it down saying but look at this but you know that's kind of what I grew up with mm. um, and I don't think it's all but gone in a lot of towns you know and I don't want to deny that it's there because I think just exactly what you said, Samuel, it does colour the people and their journeys and how they live in those environments. Very much so. I like that you described it as the utility of the land itself, like the, the soil. And I can totally relate to that, but I always just find it so interesting because settings are uh, always some, sort of a character in itself, whether they be large or kind of minor but particularly if they're capturing the australian scape obviously i read a lot of australian novels and speak to a lot of australian writers but no two are ever the same and that their function and how they serve in the narrative uh, whether they prop it up or whether they're just kind of in the back is i always find it to be very fascinating particularly like we said with the the coloring of characters and how it impacts on them 
we've mentioned obviously you've talked a little bit about the town and it's it's cattle country and for raising cattle and how that kind of obviously serves with the soil when we meet david um he's not exactly uh i'm trying to find the way to put this i feel that he's a man that feels obligated to live a life or live this farming life not because it's out of a being perceived as being part of a dynasty of farmers, but because it's more of a dynasty of guilt and being want, want to be close geographically to this sort of source of guilt. Tell me a little bit about that, this, these ties that bind us to the land, particularly within the sort of uh, how David epitomises that and the way in which he's tied to the farm out of this sort of uh, not fulfilling uh, a familial obligation as so much as, well, not in the traditional sense of a familial obligation of continuing the to tour the land, but more so out of this uh, kind of, I guess, lifelong crippling guilt. Yeah, wow, you, you're really getting the deep questions here, Samuel. Um, no, I appreciate it. I didn't mean, to, I didn't mean to, like I said, like I promise you rabbit no, hole. This I, promise is, you, I promise you rabbit hole. No, this is deep reading. This is great. You're really making me think about stuff. Look, um, I, I think it, this is a bit more basic. I think it's a bit more parent-child. Um, when you've got a parent that that isn't very giving or, or has high expectations, mm. you, you see children all the time that instead of walking away from that, they they want to give more mm. because they they feel that they're not living up to this parent's expectations. And obviously, there's a lot of kids with complexes because of that, because for whatever reason, the parents are a bit dysfunctional, perhaps, I don't know, or, or they just, their focus is elsewhere on other kids in the family or, or their own problems. And uh, I think David's in that situation where he never had his father's uh, full uh, um, approval mm. or he felt love. And obviously that's impacted on his whole life and without um, going into the spoilers of the story, mm. you know, with the trauma that he went through in his background, that obviously cemented it in his mind that, that he was unworthy and unlovable. And, you know, the, this um, having to run the farm after his father dies is almost like a self-flagellating mm. punishment. It's like, this is the only way I can make up for all the things I've done wrong. And, and I think it takes Martin to come into David's life to say, you didn't do anything wrong. Mm. And I think a lot of people need to be told that, you know, um, this is a universal message, I think. Yeah, I definitely want to get de delve into that. Keep in mind as well what you mentioned about uh, people kind of being upset or dismayed to learn about other people or how it contradicts what the idea or understanding was in which they had of someone else and the contents of their character, because I want to talk about that in a sec. Yeah, in terms sure. of uh, uh, needing someone or, or meeting someone that kind of uh, has this sort of... Um, profound impact and change on someone's life. I think it's, I wanted to talk a little bit about that, Alicia, because it felt that from the first sort of encounter, I think it was with the, the cutting of the hands, the barbed wire or something like that, that getting tended to, um, it was it was seemingly innocuous and, and relatively trivial sort of encounter. But I think it left, particularly with David, I remember he was musing about Martin's blue eyes after, um, and, and how that, like, that sort of, obviously, there's a person where he himself is turning over in his mind trying to understand why this person seemingly, who's kind of just patched him up, has had such a profound impact on him. And I want you to talk about, if you yourself, perhaps in your life encounter, or if it's coloured your writing or the, this particular story, 
if you do meet people that that might be a chance encounter, but they can have this sort of sort of immediate profound impact on you that you might not even be able to articulate or put into words even to yourself, but then you kind of look back at later, particularly because I wrote it down. I can't even read my writing. I'm just like, just looking at this wall of red. Um, David mentions at one point, he talks about how Martin was a catalyst for something. I think he likens him to vomit. That's later in the story, but it kind of underpins what's, I felt was early on with this sort of uh, impactful meeting. Tell me about that, how chance encounters or meeting someone can have such a profound impact on us, even if we're not exactly uh, aware or can put into words what it is at the time. Yeah. Um, look, I, if I try and think of the encounters that I've had, um, you know, I think traveling and backpacking around, mm. you know, how many conversations have you had where you've sat next to somebody on a train and they get off or you get off and you never see them again, you know? And, uh, you know, either they tell you something about their life that you can relate to or they tell you they're going to do something and you think, wow, I should do that too. Or probably the more powerful thing is if you tell them something about you and they seem really interested in you and they want to tell you or give you recommendations or, or they're interested in you because being interested in someone is the most powerful thing. Um, I think it was Oscar Wilde who said that um, something along the lines of the most interesting people are those that are interested in you, which sounds like a very narcissistic um, thing to say. But when you think about it, the most interesting people at the party to talk to are often the people that want to know about you, mm. but they're more clever about it than that. They weave it in with lots of other things and you go away feeling really great about yourself because they've made you feel good because they're interested in you. Mm. Now it, it's a skill and not many people have that skill. And obviously Martin being in the caring occupation that he is, he is interested in David and while there was a little bit of conflict in the conversation, you know, David's a bit um, guarded and sceptical. On top of this deja vu, he feels looking at into Martin's face thinking, you look like someone I should know. Um, you look like someone that I did know. And, and that's fighting with the, you seem like an interesting person as well. And he's got enough knowledge of <clears throat> people who come from Sydney and those, and it reminds him of those interesting conversations he used to have, those more open-minded conversations perhaps, where, you know, in the pub at the Black Rock, he can't talk about literature and, and music and um, deeper things that, that would perhaps appeal to him because, you know, it's just not going to work, you know? There's a lot of things you touched on there that I kind of want to delve into. So I'm, try I'm always trying to cherry pick and like catch little snippets of stuff that I kind of want to expand on immediately after you finish talking there, Alicia. But with the, let's, let's talk about, let's talk about Martin and Dave for a sec, because I thought that there was a good, and I think that it's, it's not actually easy to do even in 2022 and being, you know, modern literature has been going on for many a decade. Um, but in terms of the duality of uh, particularly, I guess, the Aussie male characters, when there's the balance of uh, the masculine attributes and the feminine. And in terms of uh, particularly, I guess, when you get to a small town and there can be some elements, not all, but some of hyper-masculinity and sort of this, this need for blokiness and being perceived as uh, or being interested in sort of what's perceived as the more sort of the feminine interest, whether it's books, uh, the playing of music, et cetera. Um, is, you know, kind of do something at your own peril, peril and you kind of uh, withhold that. Like you mentioned of the Black Rock, you wouldn't go and discuss literature, attempt to do that sort of stuff there. But I feel that 
it's important, particularly for these two characters, to to have them fully realise they're balancing the masculinity as well as the the creative uh, elements that again kind of being maligned in certain communities like that. And I feel like that maybe that maybe that's something that you've you've experienced and you've, you've obviously you've said plenty of plenty of gay friends, but there's this level of realism, particularly because I guess maybe you know, and I read lots of literature and lots of queer literature, but I think that, you know, you don't have to go back too far uh, to read or see stories that depict, um, you know, just inherently singularly effeminate men that, you know, the kind of wilting flower, the limp wrist and all that sort of stuff when it's in order to fully realise, particularly if in Australia as well, because Australia is just, you know, the sort of uh, quintessential blokey man, but then to balance that, I think is is an ultimate achievement and probably one of the hardest kind of elements that you've achieved within the book itself. I don't know. What do you think, Alicia, like in terms of the balancing of the the masculine and the creative elements, those that have been maligned within, you know, sort of a more sort of archetypal characters? What do you think? Yeah, difficult. Um, look, I grow, I grew up in a town that had a lot of coal miners mm. um, and very blokey, very mm. hang around the pub, you know, do blokey things, follow the rugby, go to the pub, all that sort of thing. Um, and and I keep saying to people, every rural community has its own personality and, and own colour. So, you know, probably more coal miners and things that I went to school with than farmers. But look, the sport was the everything, you know, that was where your creative outlet had to be because it was blokey and, um, if you were smart, you almost had to hide your light under a bushel because that wasn't cool, you know. And people who were really smart, as long as they were good at sport as well, that was okay. Um, just being smart wasn't good, you know, because it was like you were the tall poppy wanting to, you know, get above everybody else. And and that's a whole other dimension of issue on top of what you've already talked about. Um, so. Uh, yeah, look, um, I, I I would like to think in society now there's a lot more appreciation for people that have got a lot more balance in their lives and, and you know, the, the, the farmer that can actually play the piano and goes home at the end of the day and relaxes by, you know, reading a novel or whatever. Um, I, I would like to think that that wouldn't be seen as effeminate or, or weak in any way, but uh, I guess if it starts to take over and, and you're not, you're letting down your the team by not doing the things you're meant to be doing, then that's different. Um, it's a difficult one, Samuel. And, and as you say, getting that balance. Um, yeah. Cause I, you know, the last thing I wanted to do in, in creating my minor characters as well as my major ones was to create stereotypical archetypes or, or yeah. cardboard cutouts, you know, because, you know, that they, they started this uh, rural uh, magazine for women not long ago called Grazy Her. And, and I think someone said, oh, you know, we're not all toothless farmers out here, you know. Mm. And, and, you know, that's absolutely correct. Um, but the toothless farmers are still out there. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. On, 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 I was going to say on paper, I mean, it's, it's, it's writing. But it is, it is a tall order and it's difficult because it's to, to subvert the tropes and, you know, the stereotypical sort of characteristics 
there's the fine balance between, I guess, the, the two binaries or the two ends of the spectrum and then to kind of walk that sort of fraught line. But I've, to your credit, Alicia, I think you've definitely done that. And like I said, I think that maybe that could be attributed to, you know, you knowing um, many, many and being friends of, with many gay men and presumably some from, from these walks of life, which is obviously far cry from, from Sydney and stuff like that. So I think that that kind of, uh, that sort of level of realism has all kind of woven into, into something else there. I must tell you that with the novel, it feels like there's different stages, but it's all, and it's, it's not that it's uh, bereft of tragedy or dismay or anguish, because obviously it's riddled with that stuff of all the characters, but the ease in which the love eventuates is something that I took note of. I think that the way in which, and you, you make a comment, you describe it at one point early on, the ease in which they kind of like start forming this, this routine of kind of spending time together. And then from there, uh, you know, it eventuates into something more. There's the, there's the, there's the inciting incident that you go to, to use. I know you've graduated from UTS or throw, throw something that you probably heard from a class at the inciting incident, obviously the discovering of the, the, the proof of um, Martin's gayness, but, but in terms of before that, and this is already well on, well on the way into falling in love. I felt that there was just this ease in which, uh, they connected and then forevermore kind of spent time with each other and obviously increasingly uh, with intense feelings without putting labels on it. And there was, you know, like this is like for the, you know, the latter half of the novel, um, if not throughout most of it, it's this, uh, this, this feeling of uh, David's need for self-identifying. And then, yeah, but I'm I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. I'm splitting into two different questions, but look, let's talk about the ease in which kind of the love happens first of all. Yeah. Cause it just, it's, there's no labels on it. In many ways, it's kind of just an easy way in which it happens, but it's not through, I mean, there's a, there's a magnetism that they're drawn to one another at the start naturally, but there's not um, in the conventional sense of people just, you know, meeting within somewhere, having lots of uh, passionate sex over the course of an evening. And then from there, you know, that's seemingly on the way to love. It was more of a gradual, but easy transition. What do you think? Yeah. The slow burn. as The they slow call burn. It. Yeah. Yeah. Um, look, I think one of the things about finding someone that you can love and can love you, a lot of it is about permission mm. to be yourself. If, if you're with someone who gives you permission, whether it be subtle or, or overt, they're saying, whatever you want to be is okay with me because I, I, I like that. I, I accept you. I, I'll go with whatever you throw at me. and I think David was absolutely delighted to meet somebody and, and I don't even know if he acknowledged it internally, you know, it, it was just something that happened and he loved it and he just, he wanted more and more and more because he was hungry for it. He hadn't had it before. Mm. Someone that um, accepted or bounced off. If he had something to say, Martin bounced back at him mm. and he felt that he was, um, with someone who who accepted and gave him permission to be himself, which he'd been lacking uh, from the background that he had. You know, he certainly hadn't had permission to be who he was with his father and and not strictly speaking with his mother so much Mm. either. So I think any of us, when we meet that person that we we can let our hair down and think, hey, I don't have to wear the makeup. I don't have to put the pretense on that I'm this person or that person. I can just be me. It's such a freeing thing and you cannot help but want more of that company because you want to be yourself really. 
uh, and you want to be accepted for who you are. So I think, you know, whether it's your very best friends or someone that you actually fall in love with, and there's all different kinds of love. Um, we, you know, the friends that we love dearly, but don't have a sexual thing with, um, you know, I think David is so, it's so new and fresh for David that he cannot help but fall over himself to get to it, you know? And, mm. and so when he has these stumbling blocks of the inciting incident, mm. it, it's very dramatic for him because, and that's why he overreacts, I think, because most yeah. people, if they found out a friend was gay, they'd be like, oh, wow, you know, you didn't tell me. But for David, it's like, no, this is a betrayal because we were being ourselves and you didn't tell me and yeah. I've fallen for this person and I didn't, you know, it's frightening for him in a way because he wants to know what this really means. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like, that's, that's what I was going to say. I felt like it was uh, certainly this acceptance of self and this freedom to be oneself that David felt with Martin within a rapid period of time. But then obviously when Martin, uh, when the evidence, the inciting incident, as we're, we're going to keep calling it, uh, is then is then revealed, um, it's almost like it's... Um, David's mirroring himself and, and his own, own sort of um, personal sort of issues with this um, still struggling to accept him, himself, I guess. That's kind of the way right. I took it anyway. Yes. Yes, yeah. I think that's a good interpretation. But then after that, I mean, very shortly after that, so, he, so, he, so there's this kind of like these two tectonic plates of this inciting incident that happened. Then shortly after that, I think that, you know, um, I'm, I'm trying to dart around stuff because I don't want to spoil. But then... David confides what he's been carrying as a burden with this guilt and it's kind of been centering him to the town of Bruce for this, you know, for, for this after, you know, his father's passed away and he's managing the farm. But essentially I think like it's primarily because he feels a dynasty to the guilt or an obligation to the guilt is what I'd call it. Um, yeah. The revelation of that. So there's like, there's like the tectonic plates of the inciting incident that happened. But then after that, the acceptance and the sharing this like bearing of this, of this, uh, what, he, what he's never really shared of someone else before kind of comes to the fore. What, what do you reckon in terms of that? Um, I'm not sure what you're asking me. What, what do I think about it? Well, in terms of there was the acceptance, there was the clash there, but then thereafter the ability to kind of immediately, almost immediately move past it. Cause it happened shortly after I'm, I'm trying to, sorry, I'm not, I'm just trying to not like, spoil yeah, yeah, what's yeah. Going I, see, on. I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, so the fact that, um, the inciting incident, and then you had this, this revelation Yes. Yeah. and the revelation seemed to, in a way, smooth the way forward because yes. of how Martin reacts to that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I see what you're saying. Sorry, I was just um, kind of dancing around so much of like not spoiling because there's like there was like you know rapid sort of pummeling of yeah 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 potential yeah, spoilers that's right. and I kind of like so it. easy to give spoilers away because you want to talk about it. Um, yeah. Look, um, now you're challenging me not to spoil things. Uh, <laughs> um, look, I I think, and there was an earlier revelation where Martin has something from his past that he shares with David, which kind of comes out unprompted and David's quite shocked by that too. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think in some ways uh, as shocking as that was, it was like, wow, you know, I'm not alone here. Other people have crap in their lives too. Mm -hmm. You know, there's other, you know, I'm not the only person carrying around pain. And I think that's something for everyone to think about. You know, everyone's got their pain that they carry around, whatever it is. And, you know, that that made Martin all the more uh, 
a strong person in him because he's thinking, wow, here you are. You, you know, he says, what does Martin say? Um, on the black sheep of the family. And mm. David says, you know, what did your parents want? A fucking astronaut, you know, because he's a doctor. You know, that's the peak of, you know, um, what you what you want your son to be, you know, good Jewish son. You know, the ambition is to be a lawyer or a doctor. And um, so David's thinking, wow, even someone like that can get it wrong or be carrying something around. And I think that made Martin more human to David and, and likewise someone that he could then talk to and say, well, geez, you know, I've, I've got this rubbish in my life. And Martin reacts as a compassionate, loving person would react, um, almost talking to the child in David saying, you know, it wasn't your fault. Mm. And I think a lot of people need to hear that with the, the guilt or awful experiences they've had in their life, whether it's abuse or something they think they've done wrong or whatever. Um, I think everyone needs to hear that kind voice saying it wasn't your fault. Mm. And I think that's, um, I've nearly got a tear in my eye thinking about it because, you know, I, I'm in that situation myself, you know, mm. and it doesn't matter that you don't believe it. Just hearing a kind voice saying it wasn't your fault is like saying, Yes, you might have done these bad things or whatever, but you're accepted anyway and you're lovable anyway. And Absolutely. I think that's really important. That's, that's so true. And I mean, there's definitely something that I'll have to, I'll have to wait until the recording's off because I'll tell you like one of my favourite lines, but it's like the biggest spoilie. But it's, it's, about, it's about what we've kind of discussed, but you, you'll get it straight away. Um, so we talked about like the acceptance of self, the, the, the difficulties that sort of arose naturally from that um, with David. And then again, and I want to harken back to this, what I've kind of touched on with um, the ease in which they kind of, um, their, their situation or sort of their, their intimacy just sort of escalated. And it gets to the, the sexual sort of component. And again, theme I found prevalent throughout oral quality was the tenderness uh, between the two men, which is again galvanizing and again kind of roused them in ways in which they probably neither of them had for a, perhaps Martin for a long time, perhaps David for never or never. But I mean, I think that one of the first sexual encounters, if not the first, was it, it arose from a hug that they, I, I, I hope, I'm hoping I'm not hugely spoiling. I don't think I am because I'm not revealing anything that I, I would classify. But don't, don't you think it arose? I swear it arose from them falling asleep together in a hug. And then. Yeah, yes. That, and, and it was after a very. Um, uh, energetic night of fighting and arguing and mm. vomiting, emotional vomiting. And, mm. and you know, David was obviously um, very drunk at the time. So, you know, this all ar arises from collapsing afterwards and he's just emotionally and physically and mentally spent. You know, he's, he's told Martin everything. He's vomited his guts up and almost literally... And, and Martin's just comforted him. And so, you know, they, they've gone to sleep and he, and in his very vulnerable state, he's not wanted Martin to leave him and they're locked together in the morning. And David has this surprising reaction of the aftermath of how he feels about that. And he, he goes through a lot of thoughts about how he feels about it and how his body's reacting and, well, I won't go into any more, but, you know, um, it, it kind of arises from that. It's just like a natural, a natural way of things, I guess. It's just like, it's just, it's just natural. And then there, again, there's the, there's the, the, the ease in which it does and the acceptance of self that I think it kind of, without any sort of labels or declarations kind of 
transforms particularly David, but I mean, you know, obviously the, the love that it kind of eventuates between the two men, but yeah, that was, I guess, kind of what stood out for me throughout. And then, you know, there's the concerns that also arise. I think Jody feeds them at one point, but about uh, what is she called? Two men being chummy wummy, chummy wummy. Yeah. That's a good one. Chummy wummy. <laughs> um, you know, and, and, the, and then in many ways, in some regards, well, not in many ways, but in some regards, that, that takes David straight back to this, you know, this this concern, this this, this dread, uh, worrying. Um, let's talk a little bit about the Black Rock first and foremost, because it kind of epitomised what I think is a, a watering hole of a watering hole uh, for a small town. So, what's the kind of uh, atmosphere there, and what sort of uh, subject will be discussed? Well. Um... You know, I, I had in mind anyone who grew up with me would know that I'm probably thinking of um, the sort of pubs in Cessnock that um, were around and there were, you know, quite a lot of them. I didn't frequent them because my parents weren't drinkers and I lived out of town. But, you know, I knew enough about them and, and I'd been there. And, like, we've got the Black Opal. So the Black Rock was a very small leap, uh, especially as Black Rock sounds like coal, you know. So um, that part was very easy. And in terms of the layout and the sort of offerings the pub has, it's kind of a conglomerate of, you know, just about every pub I've ever been in. But, you know, the, the, the different rooms and the pool tables and the different spaces to um, get together. But ultimately, you know, the sport um, televisions for watching the rugby and other sport, you know, where everyone gets together and, and it's a bit of a community thing where you watch the, the, the uh, contest between the, the Poms or the, the Kiwis or whatever. Um, and, you know, the obligatory Kiwi backpacker behind the bar. Uh, and, and, you know, even those class and expectations um, of, of what's right and what's not is even played out with what they drink. Mm. Uh, you know, Martin's drinking slick red wine yeah, and red wine, yep. not, not even the house wine, you know. They're probably digging it out from the cellar for him because he's the only one who's ever asked for it, possibly. Um, and and all of that kind of thing. So there's all those little subtle byplays and, and the music they play on the jukebox, you know. Um, and David being blokey, funny, because, you know, he turns it on. He gets the adrenaline going on the Friday night to to put this face on of happiness and trying to make his mates happy and forget their problems too. And and I think they all turn it on for that, whereas they leave their problems at home because that's what you do, you know. I feel like it shows that they're like that both both men are well liked. Obviously David's been there for longer, but they're both well liked at the Black Rock. But I feel yeah, like the, I know that Jody said it at one point and definitely was in terms of the, the chummy wummy and town's been talking about it. And I think that that sort of incites David into this concern about or dread as to, to what people uh, might think about. But then there's another beautiful bit where Martin's kind of talking to him and saying stuff like Dan and, Dan and Nelly uh, might already might suspect or they might already know um, kind of uh, kind of about our situation. And I wrote it down, but I can't even read mine's down my writing. It was something like horror fest or something. Maybe it wouldn't be so much of a horror fest if they knew yeah. about it. And I think yeah. that that's really, I think that that really does underline uh, it's, it's the fear of the unknown in the self, uh, fear of, you know, what other people will think. But I think that a lot of the time, which isn't to say, unfortunately, in this, in 2022, nor probably in, a, you know, 500 years time, that discrimination or homophobia or 
whatever is going to be completely eradicated. But I think that maybe that's my interpretation of that, Alicia, was that was to show that maybe it's not as rampant as you think, or maybe it's not as you know universal. That maybe not everyone cares about a situation. They care about the person, and I guess that that kind of works in yeah. different ways without the novel. What do you reckon? Yeah, no, totally. Um, and I think Martin's already had enough exposure to Dan and Nelly to see the kinds of people they are and how they feel about David and that it's real care. You know, they are his surrogate parents, effectively. Mm. So he knows that, oh, at least Martin knows, you know, it might not be without difficulties, but they're not going to walk away from David. You know, mm. there's a big commitment there to their relationship with him. And Martin can see that. And, you know, Martin's probably had a bit of experience with seeing friends coming out and, and how parents have reacted and, you know, things like that. And he's he's taken the measure of Nellie and Dan and he's, and he's made the assessment that, no, it's going to be okay, mate. You know, it, it might not be easy for you, but it'll be okay in the long run, you know. And David's struggling to believe that because, you know, he's hidden his real self from these people that he loves all this time for the fear that he will be rejected. And it's very hard for him to hear that, you know, he should take that risk and he's frightened to hell about it, you know. Uh, but, you know, the other point you make about um, it's about the individual. I mean, you know, I used the humorous example of my dad, you know, he's a bit religious and he's, you know, you know, God doesn't want gay people, blah, 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 blah. Um, but if he's ever met a gay man, oh, he's a nice bloke, isn't he? You know, so when he meets the individual, not not the, you know, this amorphous group of people that he's not supposed to approve of, mm. when he meets the individual, um, it's all fine, usually. You know, but if it's not fine, it's because it wouldn't be fine regardless of the sexuality. <laughs> but... Um, you know, so I think that's that's a that's your typical example of the prejudice against the unidentified mass. It's it's like what they say with the refugees. You know, we can't have any individual stories here. We have to keep them as a mass because that'll keep people against them. Mm. But when you start getting those individual stories of hardship and success and families and what they went through, that's when the the compassion goes out because you recognise one person's story as reflecting parts of your own or things that you recognise. So. I think that is an important thing. Yeah, for sure. It's so different. It's so spot on, like you mentioned with the, the contrast of the individual compared to this sort of amorphous group. And I think that's, that's totally spot on. And I think that um, maybe that's kind of um, some of the reasons why David was, you know, had these concerns at the time because he didn't want to be identified as this sort of amorphous or part of this amorphous group of people, you know, without being, um, known as the individual but not taking into account that obviously he's already an individual with a great many people in this support network at one point he mentions about he took the david took the moment to appreciate i wrote it down again my writing sucks tonight but it was something like um you'll have to take up typing samuel oh i'm shocker i'm shocker david appreciated at one moment the group that was unrelated but closer closer as family than family or something something like that That's yes, yes. My, my little scribble there but yeah, yeah, I think that it's just, it's always, I guess at the end of it and the way I look at it throughout the majority of the characters, I mean, they have their own individual problems. Jody has problems with, you know, with David and we kind of touched on, you know, the, this, this feeling of an understanding of self. And if you contradict that or challenge it any other way that someone's had with this, whether it's years, days, months, however long they've known you. And if you prove them, uh, 
wrong or if you prove that you are not who they think you are etc then you know that can that can rattle people and their first instinct can be to to attack to be malicious and then you know and then process that and then that can that can then be amended i guess is kind of like what i've interpreted in some 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 of the characters or some, certainly within some instances of what jody does but overall i think that it's more about the acceptance of self or the understanding that oneself needs to accept oneself as other people kind of already do for them or with them. What do you think? Mm. Um, look, I, I think it is a, a shock for Jody to find. And look, one of the great little lines that I think she's got with Martin is, um, and it's probably a bit too pat, but you know, she's so upset that he's just come from nowhere. And she says, you know, I've been digging at David's cave door with a spoon all this time and you just come along with a, your little stick of dynamite and blow it all to smithereens, you know, and she just can't believe it. Um, and it's not exactly the sort of person that she would have expected to just come in and blow the cave door open, you know, and I think that's quite shocking for her. And as you say, she's probably feeling betrayed and duped. It's like, are you some person I didn't even know you were? Like, mm. what's going on here? Um, this couldn't be right. And she doesn't trust her own eyes. Uh, and I think she goes through a journey in this story as well, because, you know, there's a point where David's worried about confronting a certain group of people connected to martin mm -hmm. and and he and he expresses fear to jody and she said you've got nothing to be frightened of you're the one he loved mm. you know so um she comes to accept how important this was and how real and and how changing it was for david and she also has her own epiphanies on things and where that leads her to, you know, I've, I've had quite a few people who've read the book actually coming to me saying, we want another book and we want to know what happens to Jodie. She obviously inspired a lot of people with wanting to know what happened to her story. And, and, and that's a nice compliment because she is a minor character. She's a supporting character, mm. quite an important one. But for people to say, look, we really cared about her and, and these things that happened to her, we'd like to see more of what happened to her. So I'm not saying that that would happen. I, I don't know that that would be appropriate. But it is quite nice to know that there was a lot of interest in her. That's uh probably good evidence that it was a compelling and fully realized character i would imagine if that's that's, that's my takeaway yes. if i was if i was, yes. if I was yeah, I'd, I'd take it as i'd take it as that the thing that she said kind of around the same time i think you're talking about that i kind of really liked and i thought that that really showed that she had so we've talked kept talking about acceptance of self when when we when someone else challenges uh, or we are challenged about our opinions of someone's core or character from some of their actions to prove or show who they are, then then goes, I guess, a natural period of us doing a reassessment of them. And then obviously take stock and then kind of move forward with a new appreciation for themselves and ourselves. And I think with Jody, Jody probably highlights that probably better, probably the most out of everyone, out of all the characters, never mind that she's secondary. But um, when she talks about you, you can't help who you fall in love with, but you chose someone you love someone that loved you back. And I was like, well, yes. there you go. Cause she's, you know, she's, there's a, there's a lot going on in that, in that sentence. She's, there totally is. Yeah. Totally. In terms, of, 
yeah, so she's, you know, she's appreciating it for, for what they had, as well as understanding, you know, the complex nature of love, as well as the purest form of love. It's very deep. There's a mm. lot, there was a lot going on in that one sentence. That mm. was a one that I go, whoa, kind of thing. Yeah. That's, that's a really nice point you make, Samuel. And um, I think Pamela later in the story makes a similar point as well, mm. um, you know, about, lucking in if you like to, yeah, to find that the person that you love more than anything actually loves you too it's an extraordinary thing to happen in your life and and you know for those of us lucky enough to have that um for those of us who never get that you look on those other people as as gifted angels you know they're just blessed um and everyone wants that you know, so um, to, to look upon someone who gets that, it's it's like, wow, I, I want that too, you know. Yeah, it's pretty, it's very amiable, man. It's, yeah, it's it's hard to obtain, but when you obtain, it's the most beautiful thing ever. Yes. So we talked about love and we talked about acceptance. Why why do you think, Alicia, like still in this day and age, and I think that what you've you've written exemplifies this this need for our self-identity, why, why do we... Um, still have these pursuits where we try to identify ourselves or try to, I mean, like at one point um, David talks about my feelings for Martin didn't get put into a box of a label on it. And I'm like, I like when he comes to that point because he kind of just, he's accepted that we've talked about acceptance. He accepts that. But why do you think in this day and age that we still sort of feel like we need to be pigeonholed into boxes or try to identify ourselves before we kind of reach this sort of uh level i guess where we don't sort of need that anymore and we're just content to to be why do you think that that still kind of goes on in these times this is a really you're scratching the surface of a very deep subject here and it's one i've thought of quite a bit about with current happenings um uh with what's going on um look i i think at root we are a very tribal um creature mm. you know we you know there's been analysis of the fact that, you know, we've evolved from where we have and, and the reason we've survived is because we've stuck together hmm. and we survive in groups. And if you get ostracized from the group, it, it spells death. You know, if you're the witch, if you're the, um, I don't know, the person who can't keep walking with the tribe, you get left behind. Hmm. You know, that's, that's really rudimentary uh, prehistoric stuff, but, I think those those feelings are very um, deeply ingrained, and and I think if you relate that, for example, to the kids in the schoolyard when they centre out the the person who's weak and they bully them, they're, they're identifying that that person has some weakness. Like kids mm. will go for weakness, like carrion. You know, they yeah. just smell it, and that person is is ostracized and it's happening on social media in the ethernet you know in the out in the ether as well and it causes huge amounts of anxiety um stress kids who've been bullied at school some never get over it i mean i experienced it myself and you're not thinking in terms of oh i'm not belonging to this group anymore but you know, for example, when I was at high school, there were, you know, there were the, we called them the show ponies, the beautiful girls that were um, the cheerleader types that were going out with the older boys, you know, they smoked or they weren't virgins anymore. And then you had your middle group that were the nice girls that did well at school and were good at sport and whatever. And there was overlap in those groups. And then you had the bottom group of girls that, you know, they weren't very attractive or 
they 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 just didn't have good social skills or whatever and you know all you wanted to do was to get into the group above you wanted mm. to raise yourself to be with those ideal sort of girls and that's an example of that need to belong and and some of us are mature enough to say hey you know i can be myself and if they don't accept me but you know they're rare people you mm. know i've got friends who've got kids some of them are strong enough to say you know i don't need to be a part of that group that takes drugs and smokes or whatever and you just think wow what a mature kid you know you've come into yourself very young you know some people take all their lives and some people never get to that level mm. and it's um quite wondrous when you see it in a young a young kid or a person and um you know, all this struggle for identity with, you know, am I trans, am I fluid, am I all of these things? I mean, it's just added so much complexity to kids. And, you know, um, I don't want to step on toes saying what my, I think about it all because it probably comes from a place that's not um, seen as too valid. But it's the same thing where people are trying to identify with something to, and sometimes it's about getting attention as well mm. um, because people don't get enough attention from the people that they love. So they have to reach out elsewhere to get attention. I mean, there's things like that too, but you know, I could get in trouble for saying stuff like that when it's not quite in context of a deeper conversation, but look, that need to belong um, and, and that thought of being ostracised and what it means for your life if if you're ostracised, whether it's because of your sexuality, because it's you're the wrong colour, because you're the wrong, uh, you went to the wrong school, um, you know, you wear the wrong clothes. I mean, Jesus, it's just, it's a complex society we live in. And how much, how many of us are strong enough to say, you know, I'm going to be me and you accept me for what I am or I'm just going to do my own thing. I mean, that's, that's amazing when you meet people like that. Yeah. And we admire them. We admire them for being strong. Definitely. I mean, it, it, it is, it is timeless, timeless sort of issues that will always be around um, in terms of this need, this need to be accepted or to, to find, to find your people. I think it's actually probably the best way of putting it. Uh, we, you know, we're speaking yes. carefully and you spoke very carefully and I, I agree with that. It's a, it's more of a case of um, not, not necessarily identifying or belonging to one group, but finding, finding your people. And again, yes. I think this kind of also touched on what we kind of touched on before, which is, not being, not uh, meeting the individuals, the individuals that power your life or the individuals that resonate with you and can, you know, forevermore kind of uh, power your life along in the best sort of possible trajectory uh, just through them being themselves and through letting you be yourself without, yes. um, you know, having to kind of constantly identify yourself or just, just an acceptance of self. And Justify, self. to be constantly yeah. justifying yourself. This is why I am the way I am. You don't have to do that. Yeah. Oh, we could keep going down that rabbit hole. But oh, I don't, yes, uh, we I don't, could. I don't, I don't, I don't know. We start, get, we, start, we start getting in trouble pretty quickly. But um, look, yep. last question I want to leave you, Felicia, because it's always the one that always uh, I find to be fascinating. It's kind of the reason I found the show as well, is I wanted to know, I mean, you've got new, you've had a storied life. You've gone around, you've jet said you've done all this, and you've obviously gone and done your master's of creative writing at UTS. I wanted to know, though, if there was one particular point that you, re that you reached a sort of crossroads in your writing journey before you got here uh, where you considered giving up 
whether it was one particular incident or if it was a rough patch that you went through, if there was anything in which you nearly made yourself stop riding. And if so, uh, what was it and how did you kind of uh, move, prevail uh, over that and got to this point, obviously, where we're talking about something else on the show? That's an interesting one too, Samuel. Um, look, I, I've had a tug of war going on my whole life with... Um, practical jobs that earn my money to pay the mortgage mm. with competing with my wanting to be creative and doing things like right, which, you know, don't really pay the mortgage. In fact, they don't even pay for the chewing gum. Um, so I've always struggled with that. And I, I wrote a lot when I traveled, I, I did writing in spare time. Mm. Um, I also, when I was between contracts, um, I wrote something else between contracts in three months and then I started working again. So I put it in the drawer. Mm. So um, it, it was seen as a luxury thing. So I always wanted to go back to it because it was a symbol of the thing that I couldn't do, you know? So I don't know that there was any crossroads of giving up, but um, it was more reaching the epiphany of, you know what? I can't give up on it. Mm. You know, when I put this in for manuscript assessment, I got the assessment back and I fixed the easy things and there were quite a few harder things and and they were about um, filling out because, you know, when I wrote it in three months, I write high energy fast. It's all dialogue and plot. Mm. And that's like a dragonfly skimming across the surface you haven't got those delving downs into what each person thinks and th those, those beats of um, fast, slow, fast, slow that, that you subconsciously enjoy when you read a novel. Like you want that fast paced dialogue and plot, but then you want to have a, a little sit back to absorb what's happened. Like the, 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 the character will have a think about something and how do they react to that? Anyway, so that was all the stuff I had to put in there. And I, I thought, oh, this is too hard, you know, and I've got to go back to work, so I'll just give up. And then when COVID came along and I, I came close to, <laughs> I, I don't know what a nervous breakdown is, but I think I came close to it with um, the job I had and, and oh, the stress I was going through. Wait till this micro, wait till this, wait till this recording is off and then we will have a discussion. <laughs> and I, I got over that. It took me three months to, to recover from that. And I sat back and I thought, I'm not ready to go back to work. I just, I mentally cannot. Mm. And I thought, okay, I am going to give this a red hot go because I'm getting to the age where if I don't do it now, and how am I going to blind my deathbed thinking I never did this? Mm. So I fixed it up, did all the rights, rewrites that I had to do, and I submitted it. Um, mainstream, no responses. Um, not even acknowledgements. So I think there's a bit of COVID um, issue there as well as whatever. Um, and then I thought, you know what, it's LGBT. I'd rather it be seen as straight literature, um, you know, because I don't want it to be in this, in a genre. Mm. But I just thought maybe I've just got to embrace that and target, you know, the people that actually want that kind of material. And then I got the responses. So the, the, the acceptance of someone wanting to actually put it out there in the world, you know, anyone who's had their first novel accepted will just be able to tell you what an amazing thing that is. Mm. And, and, 
you know, I was thrilled and went through the whole process. So that was the encouragement I needed. But look, even if I get another novel accepted for publication, that's not necessarily going to, that's not going to pay the bills either. So I'll still be thinking about how do I manage this? How do I keep going? Do I continue with my vow of poverty? Um, or, or do I uh, take on a job and, and sacrifice something? And, uh, you know, jury's still out on that. We'll see. I would love to keep going because it's what I love doing. Mm. Um, less social media and postings and being obsessed with what's going on on Instagram would be really good. <laughs> but um, that is the lot of every writer. They have to worry about that, whether they're, you know, it, it's only when you're someone like Tim Winton, you don't have to worry about that stuff and you can go, oh, you know, let other people worry about that. Yeah. But, you know, us mere mortals, um, you know, have to keep our, our, our legs running, you know, but um, yeah, look, in, in terms of epiphany of, of being a writer too, um, I always have a call out for Catherine Heyman. She's uh, she ran a, a humble little uh, creative writing class in CE. Edu- it was continuing education with Sydney Uni, and uh, she had these fantastic writing exercises. And uh, she admitted openly she pinched some of them from Mark Haddon. Um, he's the curious incident of the dog of the nighttime, mm. um, Mark Haddon. And uh, they were fabulous. And I went home from that and I thought, you know what, I can do this. Instead of writing mishmash little threads and pieces and scraps and little character uh, vignettes, I thought, no, I went home and I write chapter one and I kept writing. And I just take my hat off to her because it really just made me think, it, it changed how I saw myself. I thought, I can do this. And sometimes you need someone to make you reassess how you see yourself because, Very much. you know, you, you, you think, oh, I can't run a lap of Centennial Park. And then a voice says to you, yes, you can, just do it. And, and when you're running around, you think, I could stop at any time. But you're thinking, no, I'm going to keep going. And when you do it, you think next time, but I did it, so I can do it. Mm. So why not do it again? But this... So that little voice that says, oh, you need to stop, it's like, well, no, I can do it. So we all have those battles. Yeah, we do. And it's got to keep going. Yeah, it doesn't pay the bills. Mm. or It doesn't pay the chewing gum, as you, as you put it on. <laughs> it doesn't pay and for also, the chewing gum. I also like the, um, the mention of the, the deathbed as well. I think that's like a really good kind of half morbid, half sort of inspiring uh, outlook on it as well, which I've heard time and time again. And I myself would also be like, yeah, well, you know, I don't want to be on my deathbed. and not having attempted it, you know, I'd rather die, I'd rather expire and say, well, I've attempted every single thing, every single thing I could possibly do. I have, I have attempted it. I have churned out how many novels I've sent them all out. I've chased, I've done everything I possibly could. And, and I can go to my grave and the great unknown knowing that I did absolutely everything because there's only, there's only, there's only everything you could do. And then at some point you need other people to you know yes. you need you need the luminaries you need that you need the them to step in the industry pundits to step in and say let's help you because but, but, yeah. but until that point uh you'd be howling at the moon but you've got to keep going you know because it's just i i leave you i leave you with a thought um i used to have it stuck to my monitor it seems to have um disappeared but um it said uh, the the pain of failure is nowhere near the pain of regret that's a good one that is a very good one and I, I really, I take that on because it is so true. The things you never did live with you forever. It's that splinter in your heart. Whereas when you fail, 
well, you get to do what Samuel Beckett says, fail more, fail better. Fail again, fail better, yeah. Very true. Um, Alicia, I'm dying to, um, I'm very grateful that you've come and talked to me on the show, but I'm dying to talk to you with the recording off because we've got some juicy things <laughs> to kind of go over. But look, thank you so much for talking to me on the show tonight. I really appreciate it. I am so appreciative um, <clears throat> of you hosting me, Samuel. Uh, Rightway podcast. I've been watching some of your work and uh, to, to have you invite me to be along, I was just thrilled and I, I was really looking forward to a book nerdy taught and you didn't let me down. <laughs> no worries. Well, well now, now the recording's off, let's, let's spend the rest of the night talking about what we're reading because I reckon that could go for a while, but I've got a whole bunch of other stuff I wanted to talk to you first. So anyway, thank you so much. So everyone, there you have it. Uh, that was Alicia Thompson talking to me about her debut published novel, Something Else, out now with Nine Star Press. Uh, I'll put into the bio slash description of this particular episode the link to the good folks at Nine Star Press so that you can get a copy of uh, Something Else hot in your little hands there. And while I'm at it, let's give a big digital round of applause again to Alicia for talking to me on the program about Something Else. Uh, it was a good uh, engaging chat there. Always a pleasure to talk to fellow writers, um, especially about such a engaging and original debut novel so huge thanks to Alicia again for appearing on the program having a, a lovely stimulating chat with me about that going down the rabbit hole as it were I think that's fair to say of the discourse uh, I think that we both thought that might potentially happen and it sure did and I'm so glad and my life has been forever more enriched from the experience of doing so so yeah huge thanks to Alicia for talking to me on the show about her debut novel something else while I'm uh, in the thanking you a huge thanks to you as well dear listener for listening to this particular episode of the Right Way Podcast program, as well as endeavouring to always go back and listen to all the other uh, ever-proliferating back catalogue, as we like to call it, episodes of the Right Way Podcast program, stretching back uh, now over a year, a year and a change since the since the show kicked off uh, in, what is it, late 2020. So do the math on that. I dropped out of maths in year 10, so not too good at that. But um, yeah, the show's been going absolutely gangbusters. Uh, huge lineup coming up in the coming weeks and months. Uh, fully booked up until August time. Uh, so yeah can't thank you enough for listening to this episode as well as all others if you haven't already give a cheeky follow on the Spotify uh, there at the top of the page if you haven't already or if you listen to this on SoundCloud the similar sort of uh, setup there too be sure to do that um, and keep abreast of all the developments and goings on of the show as well as my own sort of riderly pursuits uh, at the Right Way Podcast uh, Instagram page the Right Way Podcast Instagram page as well as Samuel Elliott author author also Instagram page, uh, follow both, tell your friends, tell everyone, tell tell your enemies, tell, tell everyone about what's going on with the show, what's going on with me as well. In the interim, yeah, please do stay tuned for the upcoming episodes, got a lot coming up. Like I said, fully booked up into August, these really exciting times. 2022 is fair to say, or it's fair for me to say, I should say that it's been a very exciting year thus far for me with my new job and uh, my new riderly pursuits that have been going on as well. So yeah, stay tuned. This uh, this year's been a, uh, a decent one so far for me and um, I aim to keep uh, speaking to really cool writers and using this platform to speak to really cool writers. So, so I can't do what I'm doing without what you're doing, which is listening to this episode along with all others. So thank you for that. Keep doing what you're doing and I'll keep doing what I'm doing. And in the interim, please have a happy, safe and rewarding life until the next episode coming out tomorrow uh, with a very, very special guest as well. Don't want to talk too much about that because like the great Willy Wonka says, the suspense is killing me. I hope it lasts forever. I might have paraphrased that but uh anyway have a good evening